la centième Oh Délice futur Oh Divine aventure Oh Hi Sarah Hi Alison, so nice to have you back. Well, I could hardly miss out on our 100th anniversary episode. Oh my gosh, that's true. Yeah, 100 episodes. It's I know. it's a lot. Um It is a lot. It kind of feels like we may have started yesterday. I mean, it does it seems like a lot, but it also seems like it wasn't that long Time ago. Flew. Time flew. Yeah. Flies, our yes. first episode was back in April 2019. Wow. I don't know if you remember, but we looked at how the French apple industry was impacted by Brexit, oh, yeah. because it was. That's right, that's right. Uh, we also looked at how France was agreeing to reparations over slavery, mm -hmm. and we asked whether Emmanuel Macron might be burning out two years after becoming president. Yeah, yeah, well, that didn't really happen, no, did it? it didn't pan out at all. <laughs> Macron appears to be sort of made of Teflon. He mm. weathered the Gilets Jaunes movement, which were very much directed against him. Then there was COVID. Mm -hmm. He Face down those anti-vaxxers, got us all vaccinated. And no. then this year, well, <laughs> nearly, <laughs> nearly. And uh, yeah, anyway, we won't get into that one no. here. And then this year, he muscled through his pension reform and up the retirement age. This, of course, in the face of huge opposition and lots of street protests. Yeah. And more recently, having talked about an end to abundance, mm. you remember, uh, and for people to tighten their belts in the wake of the cost of living crisis and all the impact of the Ukraine war and so on, he managed to pull off a very lavish reception at Versailles for King Charles. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, and last week he held Pope Francis's arm uh, in Marseille and he attended the Catholic Mass, despite the fact that France's defining principle is based on laïcité, you know, a form of secularism that separates church and state. Yeah, yeah. Although let's not get into France's relationship with Catholicism. Yeah. Anyway, um, you do wonder if anything could unstick this president or even shake his self-confidence. Perhaps the upcoming immigration bill. Mm. Uh, some people are, are saying that could be that could be tricky. True, true. Um, Michael is keen to show that the government is hardening its stance on immigration. It's very political, trying to pick up support from the political right, which he needs um, if he wants to get anything else through parliament because his party no longer has the majority. So it really depends on the right. Yeah, so some pundits are wondering whether this issue could be his Waterloo. After all, hmm. France relies a lot on immigration to keep its economy going when so many of these poorly paid sectors, hotels, etc., uh, uh, cleaning, mm. they're all struggling to recruit. But that issue is becoming very difficult to openly admit because the far right is continuing to gain ground here. Yeah. So we will be following up on immigration, of course, in mm. due course. I mean, we are both immigrants in a way, right? Well, technically I'm not. I mean, I was born here, but I see your point. And so, Alison, another challenge that Macron has had to face down is the police. Yeah, after the week of riots at the end of June and July, you know, following the, the police shooting, the deadly shooting of the young Nael at a traffic stop, well, the issue of police violence came back with a vengeance. Yeah, there's a lot of hand-wringing, mm. realizing that the relationship between the police and the general population has not really improved since the 2005 riots. And we talked about this in the podcast, how the police is kind of turned inwards, you know, shoring up against what they see as a hostile outside world, which is why I was intrigued when I heard about a new program at the University of Amiens that would bring police officers into the university to ask them to reflect on their profession in a sociology classroom. On reproche beaucoup l'entre-soi policier. 
The insularity of the police is often critiqued. That's Philippe Lutz. He's the director of the National Police Academy, was speaking at the inauguration of this course at Amiens last week. So the police academy trains the 7,000 or so new police officers that come into the force each year. This course offers a university degree in sociology for 50 of them already in their careers, not part of the initial training, and it's entitled Police and Population. Yeah, so this does seem to have come at a, a timely moment. Definitely, but Lutz says that this does go back even before the events of this summer. There are issues, long-standing issues of relations between the police and the population. C'est quelque part, des fois, un peu la police contre les autres. There's sometimes a feeling of the police against the others, he said. And the goal of this course is to offer some different perspectives for police officers who are also citizens themselves, he said. So there is some recognition that there's a problem here. Yeah, it would seem. And it was interesting to hear such frank talk about this issue coming from a relatively high-ranking position in the police, which, you know, let's face it, isn't really known for speaking frankly Mm. about anything. Lutz was talking to a room full of students, 50 police officers who were recruited out of some 200 applicants. So a room full of police, they were all in uniform? Well, no, plain clothes, mm. like any other adults, continuing education. Yeah, they're human beings. Yeah, yeah although, although their posture was maybe a little bit better mm-hmm. <laughs> after their police training. Mm. And for the next nine months, they'll come to Amiens twice a month for 120 hours of classes. And they came from all parts of the national police, ground officers, you know, patrol officers, judicial police. There were teachers in the police academy and from all across the country. How should we introduce you? Uh, Alexandre Kokilic. I'm a teacher in the police school of Nîmes in south of France. And you were a police officer before? Yeah, I worked for 13 years as a normal police officer, as a detective. I hope I will get new tools to uh, change things in my police school and in my way of training. So part of this sociology course involves the officers writing a paper, a memoir at the end. Alexandre says he's interested in the tensions between what people want of the police and what they receive. He gave a basic example like of traffic control. People want to feel safe on the roads, but they don't really want to receive traffic tickets. New recruits, they really want to serve people. They have strong values about police and they want to give a service to population. But sometimes the service young policemen want to offer population is not the service the population wants to get. That's why the police is so often criticized. That's Clotaire Logerot, who's been a patrol officer for 10 years. He currently works in the southern suburbs of Paris. And he told me that while people have certain ideas of what the police are like, the police also have preconceptions about certain parts of the population. He's interested in this course because he was getting frustrated by his work, searching for meaning. In his time off, he's a member of an association that brings police officers together with young people in difficult neighborhoods. I feel that what I do in bringing the police and the population together gives a sense of purpose to my career. If I didn't have that, I might be wondering whether it was worth continuing in the police. But with this course, I found my place. 
So Clotaire is black. He's the only visible minority in this group of students here in the room, not representative of the police in general. He does say he sees himself as maybe an example for others who might have questioned their place in the university. I had doubts. I asked myself whether I belonged here, but I still applied. I think diversity will come bit by bit. And I just want to say that the police force nowadays does reflect the population, even if you don't see that here in this room. And this is the first group of us, and it will gradually get more mixed. Someone has to make the first step. Some police officers did not feel capable of doing that, but it will come. So he was drawn to this course because he was trying to reconcile a lot of the criticisms he had about relations between police and the population. And for Anthony Caillet, it was similar. He's a judicial police officer, so he investigates crimes for prosecutors. He thinks the French police in general could use a shakeup. French policing has come under criticism from other countries, from the European courts, by the United Nations. France is coming in for a lot of criticism, and it's just crazy that there is so little reflection within the institution of the police. We must act to be able to question what we do on a daily basis. Of course, it's not easy because there is a strong group loyalty in the police force. It's difficult to get away from that. And then there are rules that stop police officers from expressing themselves freely. Police officers are encouraged not to make their personal opinions known in public. And even on the job, there's an increasing feeling of not really being able to criticize anything. This is this insularity that everybody has been talking about. Anthony says he personally feels that he can talk because he's a union leader and it's made him more confident to be critical. He sees this university course as a place to further the reflection. And he's doing exactly what the director of the course wants. Elodie Lemaire is a sociologist who spent 15 years studying the police and she hopes these officers will start to question how they do their jobs. One of the challenges is to get them to open up their vision of what the police is. They also need to take a break in relation to their daily work, the usual ways of thinking, to face these questions. She spent a lot of time with police as part of her research. She's been a participant observer in police stations, going into officers' homes, and she got close to many of them, and they got curious about her work. She thought, why not bring them into her world? She ended up pitching the idea for this program to a sociologist who works for the police academy, and they embraced it. Now, the choice of subject matter here, police and population in particular, it really gives you a sense that there is a motivation here. Le Maire does have a very distinct point of view on this. I'm really interested in deconstructing this concept. It feels like we're trapped in this idea that on the one side you have the police as a homogenous yet separate bloc, and on the other side you have the population. For me, police officers are part of the population, so we need to turn things around and see them from a different angle to explain that society is not outside of them, but part of them. That involves a shift in mindset, thinking outside the box. That's the challenge we're facing. In a nutshell, I suppose it's about asking yourself why. So you suspend the ordinary course of things for a while to try and think differently, perhaps even to reappropriate a new way of thinking. She sounds almost a bit of an activist. A, a bit, although you wouldn't have her admitting that. Of course, she's mm. keeping her sort of distance as a sociologist, though she's definitely interested in having police officers question themselves. 
The choice of students seems to have also tended towards people who are already in that questioning mindset. I mean, we heard that previously, though not everyone is fully there yet. So, for example, I spoke to a woman. She didn't want to be identified. She said she'd worked in the judicial police in Paris and in Corsica on investigations, and she didn't really want people to know what she was up to. Fine. She currently leads a section of the CRS riot police. So for her, the idea of looking at the relationship between police and population is about rehabilitating the image of the police. Je suis convaincue que les Français aiment sa police et la police aime sa population. I'm convinced that French people love their police and that the police loves the population, she told me. The image of the police today is colored by media coverage and communication from the police itself on the minority of missteps, which makes the population see the police in a negative light. She said her goal is to look at the population's relationship with public services and that the police are actually on the front lines of this. She says that often the only interaction young people have with public services in France are with the police and it often goes badly. And she'd like to see how this could change. So finding solutions, Elodie Le Maire is hoping in her way to change the police, though she'd never admit it in that way. I think this is a modest contribution to new ways of arming the police. It's adding an intellectual weapon to their arsenal. Police weaponry should not be reduced to just technology. It's also intellectual. This seems to me important in imagining what form policing will take in the future. It reframes things a bit differently. So this course is, uh, in a way, addressing what seems to be a problem, the police versus population. Yeah, though, of course, that was all very understated. But it is there. And you can see that in the lineup of the sociologists who will be addressing the class. I mean, a lot of them are quite critical of the police. So is this course drawing much attention uh, from the media and so on? Yeah, well, some. When it was announced at the beginning of the summer, there were a few articles, though at the launch, it was mostly local press. I mean, I think it feels a little bit niche. There are 50 officers in this course. And in 2020, there were 150,000 members of the national police in France. So you could say it's just a drop in the bucket, but it is a start. And as Elodie Le Maire said, it's not so much the course as what's done with it afterwards. How will these officers apply what they learn? And what will actually the institution of the police do with what they produce? And we'll have to see how that goes. E merha en tebanch. Etru shu nu kemet getu tu er heh mu. So it's time to go back in time, and we're joined by Jess Phelan. Hi, Jess. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. Hi, nice to have you back, Jess. Yeah, so, so what are we listening to here? So this is our kind of best guess at what ancient Egyptian might have sounded ah. like. Um, and we know that via the work that was done on hieroglyphics, which is the writing of ancient Egypt, which may or may not have been deciphered by a Frenchman. Ah, hence our French connection. Exactly. It is a story where it's kind of difficult to, to separate the myth from the facts. Mm. Um, have you heard of a man called Jean-François Champollion? I had not, so I'm thrilled. That I'm going to find out a bit more about this guy today. But I know, now, because of you, that he's connected to hieroglyphics. Exactly. Um, although, as I said, it's a little bit murky exactly who did what in this story. So 
we have to go back to the turn of the 18th century when Napoleon Bonaparte led France's invasion of Egypt. And he took with him more than 160 scholars, artists, scientists um, to carry out a massive kind of study of Egypt and especially the remains of ancient Egypt. Yeah, and it kind of kicked off this this mania, this obsession with with Egypt. Exactly, Egyptomania. Mm. So that kind of provided the fuel for this whole new field of study, Egyptology. But the problem was they couldn't understand the hieroglyphics, right? Yeah, exactly. So scholars at the time were were stumped and and they didn't know really whether the the hieroglyphs represented just ideas or also kind of sounds and a a sort of spoken language. Yeah, so enter the Rosetta Stone, right? I mean, we've heard of this. I think it was found by a French explorer and it had writings in hieroglyphics and in ancient Greek, right? Mm, Yeah, it did. And there's also actually a third text in the middle of those two, Mm. which seemed to be another kind of old form of Egyptian writing. And people quickly figured out it's one inscription written three times. So if you could read the ancient Greek, you would know what the other version said and and therefore you'd sort of work backwards to see how it was written in these other two scripts. So um, as soon as the Rosetta Stone was found, really, scholars all over Europe were trying to decipher what it meant. Um, and Jean-Francois Champollion, he was a young linguist from the southwest of France. He was kind of a prodigy when it came to Middle Eastern languages, especially. He was obsessed with learning as many as possible. And he became especially fixated on Egypt and on Coptic, which he learned from an Egyptian priest in Paris. Right. Coptic is the language of Coptic Christians. Yeah, that's right. So it was used in Egypt in Roman times and and then it got replaced by Arabic. So it's only really used in the Coptic church now. But it's actually the kind of missing link with the hieroglyphs because the way that it's written, some of the letters are like a sort of modified, simplified version of the hieroglyphs. Oh, wow. And the middle text on the Rosetta Stone also kind of looked like that. So to make a comparison, it's a bit like if you know French or Italian, you might be able to understand bits of Latin. So did this guy actually crack the code in a way? Well, so Champollion, on the 27th of September, 1822, he gave a public lecture where he announced to the world that he'd matched a lot of the hieroglyphs with particular sounds. So he claims this, but I don't think he was the only one to have claimed it. (laughs) No, that's right. Lots of people had been working on the Rosetta Stone and Champollion certainly did use some of what they'd already found. So most notably, there was a British guy called Thomas Young. So he'd laid a lot of the groundwork for what Champollion did. And later on, he complained that the young Frenchman hadn't given him his due credit. Ouch. (laughs) Mm, Happens all the time, though, doesn't it? Um, So then what happens after he announced it, that he's cracked the code? So that lecture in uh, September 1822, that was just the beginning. He kept working on his theory, trying to refine it, um, because there there were a lot of gaps and people who came after him kind of built on it, improved it too. Um, But it it was a kind of major breakthrough. And four years later, Champollion was appointed the very first Egypt curator at the Louvre Museum in Paris. And in 1829, he finally got to go to Egypt for the first time. It was only then 
that he went to Egypt. Yep, he'd been oh. doing all of this study remotely, um, but now he was given a budget to go and kind of buy up important antiquities and bring them back to France. Mm, plundering. <laughs> yeah, yep, that was the style. At borrowing. Oh, borrowing. Being inspired Sorry. by. Protecting, <laughs> right, I think, right. is the line, yeah. Um, but he, he, he didn't do that for, for that long, actually. So he was only 32 when he made this breakthrough with the hieroglyphs, and he actually died less than 10 years later at 41. And he is buried in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris under an obelisk, of course. Yes, going to go visit. Um, thanks there to Jess Phelan. Thanks for the history and we'll have you back next time. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, Jess. Bye. <laughs> Proteins, vitamins. Sarah, I'm wondering if you've ever eaten an insect, perhaps a grilled grasshopper or maybe a chocolate-coated ant? Well, actually, I, I have. I, I reported on this years ago. Mm. Um, I went to an event promoting edible insects and I was served a chocolate tart with a little fried cricket on top, Ooh, kind of looking at me. And, yeah, and I was convinced to try it, um, even though I'm a vegetarian. And it was surprisingly innocuous. It didn't taste like much, just added a bit of crunch. Um, <laughs> what about you, Allison? I'm ashamed to say it because I like to think I'm quite adventurous uh, uh, in culinary terms, but I have not. Uh, what about snails? Well, they're not really insects, are they? I guess but not. they are very French. And no, I haven't uh. eaten snails either. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, insects are, are not an integral part of Western culture. No, so no. it's no big surprise if we haven't eaten that many of them. Unlike in some Asian and African countries, yeah. and for example, Mexico, where they really are eaten as a rich and regular source of protein. They're now getting a lot of attention, though, here. Uh, in France because, well, I mean, we have to find a way of feeding this ever-growing population. Mm. According to the UN's World Food Programme, there could be 9 billion of us by 2050. That means we need to increase our food production, they say, by around 70%. And the problem is that mm. food production is responsible for a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. We're all talking about climate change. And more than half of those emissions are caused by meat production alone. And yet there's increasing demand for animal protein. So mm, so the solution is we all become vegetarian. Well, that's another <laughs> subject. And I guess that's not happening anytime soon. Yeah. But we do urgently need to find another source of protein. So this is where the insects come in. You got it. Insect protein is increasingly seen as an environmentally sustainable alternative to animal protein. Mm. Rest assured, we're not necessarily talking about replacing chicken wings with a, with a deep-fried locust. What we are talking about, and France is a world leader in this domain, is harvesting insects to get protein as an ingredient to then use to feed farm animals and fish. So basically, like, still feeding the animals that feed the world, but I guess in a more sustainable way. Yeah, and then gradually we might just introduce this protein in food for humans as ah, well. sneak it in. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Some people are into it, but yeah. let's just say at the moment that is not the big plan. Sure. A company called Insect, which is spelt with a Y, by the way, yeah. if you're looking for it online, is a pioneer in this field, and it's soon to open the world's biggest ever vertical insect farm near Amiens, where mm -hmm. you went uh, recently for the police subject. Mm. They'll be breeding huge quantities of mealworms and turning the larvae into pet food, fish and animal feed and fertiliser. 
basically they're expanding on what they've already been doing in their existing insect farm in the town of Dole in the Jura. So they set up shop there in 2016. They've got a load of experience. I went along to meet the company's co-founder and to visit the plant to see how their model aims to be both sustainable and profitable. Before going into the production area here in the factory in Dole, I'm kitted out with a single-use hairnet, a white coat, hard hat and special rubber soles. All of this to avoid bringing my own bugs into this big bug house. Henri Genin, the company's insect expert, washes his shoes and prepares to show me around. You know, the first thing that really strikes me though, Henri, when I walk in here, yeah. is the smell. This very organic, a bit sort of composty smell. The smell, yeah. Yeah, it reminds <laughs> me of a sort of chicken coop or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's the same thing. In fact, we use cereals uh, like uh, wet bran. Uh -huh. So uh, it smells the same as you can find in, uh, in a farm. Some 3 billion mealworms are living here at any one time. 95% are at the larval stage, so still worms, with just 5% kept as full-grown beetles for reproduction. There you have a, a small sample of, uh, of my children. <laughs> Genin takes me into one of the labs to see samples of the mealworms at various stages of their 90-day life cycle. We are for great of uh, mealworms. The first one is a small larvae, which are about uh, four weeks old. Babies. Yeah. <laughs> Babies, yeah. <laughs> They're wriggling around, having a nice time. And uh, after you have the, the mealworms, at the end of the process, so it's a big larvae. Yeah. They are about uh, 2.5 centimeters long, about. Okay, and, and how old are they? and they are eight weeks old there. So these are mature ones. What's the name of this particular bug? It's a mealworm, so it's a Tenebrio molitor. We decided at first to raise this uh, species because of a lot of quality for these uh, bugs. In fact, if you compare it with others like crickets, for example, you need uh, lots of place if you raise cricket, and they can't climb. Can't it's climb, a, yeah, yeah. It's so an, they can't get out. Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting captive. for that. Yeah. And the adults, they can fly too, yeah. so it's yeah. very interesting to raise it, and you can uh, keep uh, a big amount of biomass in one uh, tree. As the insects don't fly, they're ideally suited to this kind of farming. So we're in the room here at the heart of what they call this vertical farming method. These red trays are stacked very, very high on five different levels. And so this is massively space-saving as a, as a way of farming. So how high is this? It's a 13 meter high. 13? 13. You have about uh, 700 square meter in this area. And you have a robot who knows where is each pallet and we go catch each and replace it. 
A yellow robot, similar to the one in a car factory, pivots around, its arms moving the stacks of trays from one level to another, in keeping with the insect's development. Robots sort the worms according to size and they feed them. Everything here is automated and guided by artificial intelligence. A sophisticated system of sensors keeps the right temperature, air, humidity and CO2 levels to make sure the worms live in the best conditions. Good feed and a good condition. What do you feed them? We feed uh, wet bran. 80% of what they, they need is sweet bran. We give them water. The welfare is important for us, but for them too, because if we want them to produce, you need that. Once the larvae have reached optimal size, around two and a half centimetres, robots move them over to the processing unit, where they're steamed in a blancher and then ground and dried. The farm produces about 350 tonnes of larvae per year, and most of them are turned into protein powder. The powder is packed into 500 kilo bags and most of that will be used for animal feed for chickens, pigs and fish and pet food. But nothing goes to waste. The oil that's extracted is also sold for use in animal feed and the insect droppings and food leftovers, called frass, are used to make plant fertiliser pellets that are popular with wine growers. This is the protein that you can see there. It's dry without um, fat. It's very important because we, we separate the fat from the protein. It's a rich brown color. What do the worms taste of? Me worms is a cereal's uh, taste. They taste of cereals? Yeah, yeah. Because that's what they eat? Yeah, of course. Okay. We are what we eat. <laughs> so they don't have a strong taste? No, no. Quite neutral uh, taste. So that's but why it that's can be used in so yeah. many different products? Of course, okay. of course. Yeah. And it's better for us. <laughs> the company has come a long way since it was co-founded by agricultural engineer Antoine Hubert in 2011. We had no idea how to do it, but we said the insect will be part of the future of sustainability and, and sustainable food chains. Was there much resistance in the beginning? At the beginning, people thought it was more a joke, it was fun, it was they were like four fun guys <laughs> speaking about insects. When they were looking for the best insect to farm, Henri Génard, who ran his own insect farm at the time, convinced them to go with the mealworm, an altogether common insect in France. Insects are good for you. The mealworms we selected uh, as a species is as, as much protein as red meat. You have the good profile of all amino acids, uh, a good fat profile also, omega-6, uh, unsaturated fatty acids, so not saturated ones, which are less good for health. And it's also sustainable for, for the planet because it's 40 times less carbon emissions than beef. Uh, we, uh, per ton of a product uh, we have, it's uh, 40 times less also land use and uh, 30 times less water consumption than pigs. In a nutshell, we are as uh, sustainable as plant-based proteins, but as nutritional as meat. And meat is less sustainable, plants are less digestible, but we have the best of both worlds. Hubert recognises there's still some reticence over farming insects for human consumption, but he has seen progress. Honestly, we could see things changing drastically in 10 years. In the past two years, especially after COVID, it seems like Europeans, including French, were more interested to understand where their food comes from, their the impact, etc. And we did different surveys, consumer surveys in the past few years, every year, every two years. 
Are you ready to eat insects? It was maybe 10% 10 years ago, 20%, 5 years ago, and now it's more than 60%, 70%. Mainly people living in cities, mainly young generation, but it's coming to be something that is not seen as weird or disgusting uh, mm -hmm. because it's, it's an ingredient. So it's like a wheat powder or another you can use in different dry products like cereals, uh, energy bars, pasta, but... Uh, also sausages, meat replacement. You, you can imagine a very broad uh, variety of products of your everyday life, so you don't see the insects. Their main market, however, remains pet food, and the US, where they've recently opened an insect farm in Nebraska, has huge potential. Pet food footprint is not small. In the US, I think cats and the dogs consume as much meat as the French people. It's insane, but it, it, the impact is there, so there is a need also to make something more sustainable there. Hubert says the pet food market is also a canny way of making insect protein more palatable to humans. Pet food is like a bridge between animal feed and the consumers because when you sell to a pet, you sell basically to a family. You sell to owners and the pet belongs to the family. So the owners try to find the best for them, for their kids and, and for their pets. So you, you really enter the whole, like a home care and family environment. So for us, it's very good. Also, and entry points that show to the European consumer, especially in France, that it's possible. So he seems there to think that we might all be eating bugs in the near future, Alison. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's certainly very enthusiastic mm. and the company has big ambitions. It's already raised around 600 million euros in funding since it, uh, it set up shop. They've invested a lot of that money in R&D to get the technology right. And they've actually registered 380 patents to cover all of that. Mm. Equally, they've also laid off some staff. So it's clearly not all, you know, roses. Um, they will be opening InFarm, the world's biggest vertical insect farm, in the coming months, and it will produce 150 times more than the doll plant. So, And then their little sister will concentrate on developing the niche market of insect proteins for humans. Yeah, because there's not that much like insect-containing food that you can find on the market here in France. Definitely not in the supermarket. No, no, there isn't much. It's true. In fact, there's just one French company, it's called Giminis, that is authorized to sell insect-based products in France, and that's mainly online. But Insect, the company, like several other French startups in this field are confident that they will get the green light from Brussels soon and then from the French health authorities. Right, because this is a European issue, I mm. guess, like food and security and all. Um, apart from the fact that some of us find the idea of eating insects a bit off-putting, um, is there even agreement that bugs are in fact a sustainable source of protein? Well, some environmental NGOs have expressed reservations, not least the ones that actually want to see an end to animal farming altogether. So that comes as no surprise. They say insect protein in animal feed is just propping up a system of intensive agriculture rather than forcing it to change. And they'd prefer to see plant-based protein or cultured meat uh, more developed. Hubert says in response that their insect-based protein is just part of the solution. He's got no pretension for saying, you know, it is is the solution. And he also points out that plant-based protein has its limits too. Soy imported from South America, for example, has a very heavy carbon footprint and it's often also contributed to deforestation. So there's clearly no one solution in feeding uh, the ever-growing world population, but insect protein looks like it could be part of the mix. Part of a mixed drink, a mm -hmm. smoothie, milkshake perhaps. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> Et c'est quoi C'est à base 
Well, that's it for this show. Uh, Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. As always, if you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us. It really does help us grow the podcast and get new listeners. Mm, you can also write to us. People still do that kind of thing <laughs> uh, at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France and on rfienglish.com. And just in case uh, you all might have thought well, we'll end on episode 100, no, no, we will be back yeah. in two weeks' time on Thursday, October the 12th. Bye, Alison. Bye bye, Sarah. And no promises to go through to 200, though. Oh, oui. C'est très réglo.